Morena, and welcome to this Word Christchurch, uh, Word Christchurch Writers Festival session, Bloody Scotland. I'm Charlotte Graham Maclay, and before we get started, I'd like to thank the British Council, Creative Scotland, and the Bloody Scotland Festival, who have all supported this session. Um, our guest today, Denise Minor, has certainly been responsible for a lot of bloodshed over the streets of Scotland over the years. Fictional, mostly, we hope, yeah. <laughs> Um, performing her killings with compassion, wit, unflinching realism, and always a strain of incisive social commentary. Her characters and dialogue are crime novel classics, and she'll manoeuvre you into seeing the grey area of a story just when you are convinced it's black and white. That's why she is among the crime, great crime novelists of our time, in my opinion, I'm a long-time fan, um, with about 15 books to her name, plays, documentaries, graphic novels, and her latest book, The Long Drop, won the... Now, the name of the prize, I'll get you to say it. McIlvany. Yeah, I wasn't going to say it like that. McIlvany Prize. How are you going to say it? Oh, I was going to attempt some, some New Zealand <laughs> <laughs> um, prize for Scottish crime book of the year. Please welcome Denise Miner. Thank you very much. Thank you. Hi. It's a sign of a good conference if you know most of the people in the audience. <laughs> They've become a gang over the past few days. <laughs> I read somewhere that you once went to a session in America that had four audience members and you'd befriended all of them. No, I didn't befriend them. Um, what happened was, <laughs> it was a really weird night. It was a very weird night. It was in LA and it was at the end of a tour and I was absolutely exhausted. And I got there and it was a dismayingly small crowd. And it was one of the most magical nights I've ever had doing a reading. And it was a really important night for me because you realized it's not about the numbers, it's about who's there. Mm. So we started talking and, it was, and I was just kind of, you know, I was kind of thinking, oh God, you know, I've got kids at home. What am I doing here? I'm so tired and no, nobody's that interested. Anyway, so I started talking to one girl and she was really kind of like, you know, she looked quite intense. And uh, uh, which I, I really like that, that always gets me. And she, she was quite intense and she said, you know, I, uh, I moved to LA uh, because of you. And, uh, and I was kind of like, all right, really, yeah. And she had written a screen, she read Garnet Hill mm -hmm. and she had written a screenplay because of it. And the screenplay was uh, about someone who'd been in a mental hospital and stuff happened to her. And then she got to LA and she moved with her mum and her sister, which as soon as someone's moved with their mum, there's a big story there, do you know what I mean? Yeah. She's, she's saving all the people, you know? Yeah. I just loved her the minute she started talking. Anyway, she ended up, it was bought for a lot of money, the screenplay. And it got developed and developed and it got taken out of her hands, it got rewritten, and it ended up as single white female too. Yeah, oh, I know, I know, you know. And, uh, and, and she said, you know, but I'm gonna keep trying. But so anyway, we were, we were really good pals for ages. And then there was another lady, how could you not love somebody like that? I mean, what a great story. And then there was another lady, and I can't quite remember how it happened, but she started telling us that she'd adopted all these kids. And, every and then we formed a group, and then an email group. And then every time she adopted another kid, we would all get photos of the kid as well. And, then, and there was another guy who was one of the booksellers, that's how, Runaway, the, the reading was one of the audience members was the bookseller. And, uh, and his name's Scott. I can't remember his second name, but Scott, Scott had moved from Austin. And Scott's still a really good friend of mine. And I see him whenever I go to the States. Um, I don't know what Scott's story is, but he, he'll tell me one day. 
tiptoe, tiptoe. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, it was really important because it's not about hitting numbers because yeah. your relationship as a writer is with individual readers. Mm. So, you know, sometimes you go, sometimes I go and do things and there's like 500 people there and I, and I, I look at the crowd and I think, I bet those four people are sitting and they're not going to meet each other now and they're not necessarily the people who would come up and speak to you at the end. But you have to remember that they're there when you, do you know what I mean? When yeah, you're speaking yeah. to bigger crowds, do you know what I mean? Yeah. But I think we all felt it was a really kind of magical night. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? yeah. yeah. Um, it's like if you're on the, if you're, you know, interviewing on the radio and occasionally you get an email from someone yeah. that an, a particular interview really spoke to them yeah. in some way and you think, oh, that was, even if everyone else hated it, it was worth it for you to yeah. get to hear that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, what are you doing? I mean, are yeah. you trying to rack up sales figures? Go and work in insurance. <laughs> really, it's not really about that. Do you know what I mean? It's really not about that. I mean, really, the privilege of being a writer is that one-on-one -on -one interaction with an individual reader who you might never, ever meet. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, or they might sidle up to you in a shop in mm. 15 years after the book came out and say, you know, I know Paddy's not fat. <laughs> Which somebody did to me. In, it, yeah, they did that to me in Debenhams. And I was like, oh, I'm looking for pants for boys. And I'm like, oh, oh, I hate this. I'm so... Oh. And someone came up and just cupped my elbow and said, I know Paddy's not fat. And then she sort of slid away. She was very shy. And, uh, oh, God, I just felt like, God, you know, that's, what a connection that is to have with another person. That's so lovely, you know. Um, well, Denise will be at the signing table outside after. Yeah. <laughs> Good wee plug there. Um, or you can form a crime novel group among people who you've met today. I don't know, yeah. book club. Um, we should talk about, before we get to some of those older characters, we should talk about the latest book, which is True Crime. Why are we all so obsessed with true crime? Have, have you thought about this a lot? Yes, it, okay. it's very recent, this, mm. this thing. And I have a theory, in fact, I think I'm gonna be editing a series of true crime books. Oh, great. And I'm really interested in the history of true crime mm. because True, I've loved true crime for a long, long time, and it was my go-to read um, if I was fed up or and and it had this and and what I used to do at the end of every grueling tour was I would buy a really trashy true crime book, and I would go somewhere very posh for afternoon tea and I would sit and read it and um, my favourite one was. Uh, uh, Britain's most dangerous gangs. I mean, really mm. trashy, like the, the world's biggest monsters and things like yeah. that. Yeah. And uh, um, uh, anyway, but it, so so I really love true crime. But true crime's been missold for a long, long time, and it got sort of stuck in this kind of cul-de-sac of um, form and who you could sell it to. Mm. So it was quite, you know, uh, misogynistic. It was generally very violent against women. It sort of lingered on violence against women. It 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 sort of formed this. Um, it got stuck in a sort of biographical... There was always a point where they were trying to justify the fact that they were writing true crime, mm. you know, and they would say, you know, isn't that dreadful to kill all those people? Isn't it dreadful? I mean, I'm really against it, yeah. <laughs> um, or, you know, and, and, you know, justice was finally done. I'm not reading it for the justice. I'm reading it for the true crime. Yeah. There's, a, there's a prurient interest in that. It's like um, people who used to go and see executions you know, most people who went to see executions didn't need a justification for going to see executions. They, they admitted that they were there for a prurient reason. It wasn't necessarily the nicest side of their character, but they were there. And, and I think that's true crime. I think we're interested in those things. And there's a, there's a funny thing, once every few years, someone will write an article about why are women interested in crime fiction? Mm. Or why are women interested in true crime stories? And there's usually, there's, there's usually a few excuses. And one of them is, uh, women are so used to being afraid 
that we have to read these things to practice being afraid. And uh, that was a big theme in those <laughs> articles. Uh, another one is, um, you know, women uh, want to read about social rupture or we're trying to find out how to keep ourselves safe. I think we just, our pals read those books and say, listen to, listen to this podcast, mm. listen, mm. you know, read this book, it's mm. really interesting and stuff like that. But so, um, but when Truman Capote's In Cold Blood, he really wanted to make it into a literary genre. And I think one of the lovely things about Capote was he was prepared, do you know In Cold Blood? Yeah. yeah. Mm. He, re he was really prepared to look at quite dark things honestly. And I think that was one of his real strengths was honesty. And, um, but there's a lot of dishonesty about true crime. Mm. And there's a lot of um, uh, distaste about true crime. There's a fantastic true crime writer called Gordon Byrne. I don't know if you've heard of him. He wrote a book about the Wests called Happy Like Murderers. Oh, right. He wrote a brilliant one about um, uh, Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper, called Somebody's Son. And uh, he... Uh, he he was very you know he was really interested in why true crime was regarded as a lesser form and why you know uh, why why people were embarrassed about reading it or whatever and he wrote it as a very high art for and the, the one about the wests has this kind of operatic reprise all the way through it so Fred West's thing was he objectified people and personalised objects. So he would refer to the patio as she, and he would talk about people as it. And, you know, he had this real conflation between things. So he had this sort of operatic reprise that comes all the way through um, the, the story and stuff like that. And I, I read it and I thought, this is amazing because it's a really low art form written in a very high art style. And I gave it to my friend and she took it to her book group. And the response, because they're quite posh ladies, I don't know what book groups are like out here, but <laughs> it's a very particular social tranche of people. Oh, right. And um, it's very Chardonnay heavy. And <laughs> she, she, um, she's self-educated, you know? Yeah. So she's, she follows her nose. She's not being told what's good. She follows her nose. And uh, she took it and they were disgusted. And some of them left because she'd introduced a true crime book to the, oh, no. I know, it makes you want to read true crime, yeah. doesn't it? <laughs> So the long drop, which is this story about, um, well, it's really a story about how the city of Glasgow responded to this serial killer. And I, <laughs> I always get the audio books of your books because I right. want to hear them read, you know, in the original oh, Scottish right, okay. as probably you and God intended. So <coughs> I got the audio book of the long drop. And so now I just want to call him Peter Manuel. <laughs> so, so Peter, Peter Manuel yeah. um, is, was this boogeyman and, and serial killer who, um, who you've written about this, this meeting that he had or this night that he spent with the, with the husband and father of one of Manuel's supposed victims. And it was interesting what you've just said about true crime being quite disingenuous sometimes because I wondered reading the book whether you were going to succumb to the temptation, which you never do in your fiction, to kind of lay the message on with a trowel, you know what I mean? That this whole, this whole thing about, you know, should Peter Manuel have been hanged? Should anyone have been hanged? Did he even do these crimes? You know, was, what kind of person was, was William Watt really? Um, and you never, you never succumb to the temptation to kind of moralise in the way that, as you suggest, true crime sometimes does. Well, I've committed so many sins in my life that it would be... <laughs> um, but, but that's what's so interesting about that story is it's not that you couldn't take a position on it, really. And I, well, I suppose, 
you know, Peter Manuel was hung for those crimes, mm -hmm. uh, but actually what was going on in the city was much more interesting. And with serial killers, I don't think serial killers are particularly interesting. Mm -hmm. What I think is fascinating is our reaction to serial killers and the way people respond to serial killers and the sexualization of serial killers and uh, people marrying serial killers in prison. And, I, you know, I mean, serial killers, they're just people with something, you know, something very wrong with them. But what are we about, you know? And why do we need serial killers? And actually, if you think about the, you know, the, the, the serial killer story is a very new story. And it comes out of the Behavioral Sciences Unit in Quantico, where they sat a number of men who had committed a, a you know, series of murders down. They interviewed them. They drew up a pattern from their behavior. And now they talk about that as if it's set in stone. It isn't. It's an, these are all assumptions. And it's a very problematic um, narrative. It doesn't, no, no women fit within the serial killer story. That's why they always say there are no female serial killers. Well, no, there are no female serial killers that fit within that narrative. But, you know, and it's very American. They talk about serial killers as if um, there's something wrong with them and them alone. But actually, the only reason we have serial killers is because they're not caught the first time. So it's a policing problem, really. Yeah. <laughs> when you think about it, that's, that's why we have serial killers. It's yeah. not, you know, yeah. they're not, uh, you know, since the, but we still say, you know, I mean, where were the serial killers in the Middle Ages? Well, somebody in the town would have noticed someone coming in and doing that, and then, mm. then they, they, you know, they would chase them with pitchforks. That's yeah. why that didn't happen then. Or, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd, or they would have joined the army, which was another option then. Um, but, uh, yeah, so the, but the serial killer story is so interesting. And, and the thing about the manual case is that happened before that narrative was set. So no one's fitting within the narrative at all. And, you know, uh, people are going to laugh at him because they don't think he's incredibly attractive. And they, or some people think he's attractive. Some people think he's just misunderstood. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and, you know, all of the, it's really interesting because very, most of the witnesses against him were criminals who worked in the same nightclub. So obviously, you know, just like in Fritz Lang's film M, have you seen Fritz Lang's film M? Oh, it's fantastic. Um, the underworld clearly decided this is interfering with our business and we need to get rid of this guy. So they're all on the stand and they're lying through their teeth. So much so that when they tell a really good lie, they get a round of applause from the audience because <laughs> they're just lying really badly and everyone yeah. knows exactly what's going on, you know. Yeah. But obviously you don't get that in the court reports because we, we were yeah. talking earlier about um, Charlotte was a, a, a court reporter and we were saying how all the best stories never ever get in the papers because they just don't go anywhere or they're not news or they're just amazing but they don't mean anything or they don't relate to the, the audience. Um, and so lots of those stories were completely lost. But I think, what, I think that's what's really interesting about him was um, uh, other people's reactions to him. So he's a bit of a vacuum at the centre of the story. So for example, they didn't know about MO, which we all know about now, obviously. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so they charged him with uh, chasing a girl for two miles and beating her to death with a rock, um, strangling somebody with their own bra in a field and then burying the body and then breaking into a house and shooting everybody and then breaking into another house and shooting everybody. And it, it basically, it was every crime that was on the front page of a particular newspaper that day with a banner headline that said, why aren't the police doing something? Um, uh, so they charged him with all of those things because they didn't know that you're only supposed to go for things that are broadly similar. Yeah, yeah. yeah they just yeah. thought, bad, that's yeah. bad, yeah. And in fact, you mentioned that after he was hanged, 
another crime very similar to one of the ones that he was hanged for was, was then committed. So, I mean, that was amazing because yeah. I was I was in uh, the library scrolling through all the old microfiche reading these newspapers and really staggering was the how much coverage there was. I mean, there were special pull-out editions of the paper, word for word, everything that was said in court. Mm -hmm. And then at the very end, you know, they, you, can feel, you can feel kind of the sadness of the journalists that he's dead because he was just he was selling papers <laughs> like hotcakes. And... Um, <laughs> Very, very obviously, some journalist has found this story of a girl who was murdered in exactly, this is like three months afterwards, murdered and raped in exactly the same way as the case that Manuel was found guilty for. And what they did was they put a paragraph on the, the, the very middle of the front page where your eye falls, and they left a space around it. And, and it says, you know, it doesn't mention Isabel Cook, but it's very obvious what it's talking about. And it's in the same field, and it's the same MO. And, uh, and actually, I read the, the very bad cop. Uh, the, the, there were two, caught, two sets of police officers involved in the case, and one of them was terrible. In fact, they were referred to as Masons with Truncheons, right. the Lanarkshire police, because they just went about. And I read uh, his autobiography. And in it, it said that he'd solved every murder case he'd ever been involved in, most of them within 12 hours. <laughs> so they just went out and looked for someone rough and charged them. Yeah, That's basically yeah. what happened. And he actually addressed that. And he said, you know, they said it was very similar, but, you know, that was just rubbish. It was just copycat and we got someone for it. So I think that basically they just stepped outside the police station and grabbed somebody and put them in prison. It makes you think that if he had not been hanged, if he'd just been sentenced to life in jail and he was still alive, you know, in, in recent decades he would have had some hotshot lawyer and some DNA thing and it would have all gone to appeal or retrial or something, right? Like, no. does it, isn't that just too juicy to but contemplate? It wouldn't, it wouldn't have because he was an arsehole. Right. So, <laughs> so, oh, we've had, some, we've had some here get retrialed. Oh, really? <laughs> no, but this guy, he couldn't, he couldn't stick with a lawyer. Right, oh, that's right. right. So yeah, he was course. like Trump. The minute anyone hoved into his line of vision, he fell out with them. Right, yeah, and, yeah. And he hated clever people. Right. So he couldn't have clever people around him. Yeah. In fact, I've, a, I've got a, I'm keeping a book on who falls out with who first, Nigel Farage or Donald Trump, because they're both <laughs> exactly the same personality type. Yeah. They cannot maintain any kind of a relationship with anybody. I'm sorry if you're all massive Trump supporters, but... <laughs> I think you're safe. Put, put my cards on the table. Uh, but but there, it's a fascinating personality type, and, yeah. it do, and it does make you quite plausible to people who want to be told what to do. Mm. So, you know, adamance gets you quite a long, long way, but if you cannot keep people around you, then, uh, and his family weren't playing along. So his mother was a really amazing character. His mother would not lie on the stand to save him. Mm. Uh, she was because she'd known him since birth, right? You know, that, that was probably why she wouldn't lie on the stand to save him, because she knew him. Well, I think it was her religion. She was very, right, very okay. religious. And she was really trying to do the right thing. She was in, her husband, actually, Mr. Manuel, was a skank and had been done um, for... Uh, he was fined for being a peeping Tom. He lied for his son. He, you know, when, when it was going... When he, he, was, he was questioned by his son on the stand... And he's kind of, you know, his son will make a bad joke and he kind of laughs along. Ivanka, that kind of family relationship where I'm a bit scared of you, so I'm going to go along with anything you do or say because I'm quite scared of you. Mm. Um, but his mum was just like this moral centre of the family. And she was so well... She, she didn't even move house after he was hung. 
she lived there for the rest of her life because all the neighbors knew her yeah. and they knew she was a good person and they knew she was doing her best with a really bad hand. And his sister became a midwife in Glasgow and uh, she never married, but she didn't have to move either because people know if you're struggling with a difficult situation that they were really deep down decent people. And people mm -hmm. often in Glasgow would say, my baby was delivered by Peter Manuel's sister. So she wasn't even hiding it. <laughs> she kept her name <laughs> yeah. because they were good, good. They, were, you know, they weren't like massively pious or anything, but yeah. you know when you meet someone who's doing their best, yeah. you know? Was this a big, uh, you obviously got obsessed with this case and then decided to write a book about it, but somewhere in there was there concern that you were straying away from this thing that had this, the, the fiction side of things that had kind of defined your work for so long, although I know you'd done other things. Well, I'd always wanted to write a true crime right. book, yeah. um, partly because they are regarded as solo class and partly because they're things I enjoy reading. And I think when you write, you, you write what you read. So if you read a lot of something, then eventually you'll think, I can do better than that. Yeah. Or I hated that about that. Yeah. So I think a lot of people are motivated to write things um, partly out of love for a form and partly out of annoyance. I think that's a really great motivator for writers is I'm sick of people always, all the women are tall. Why can't they have very short women being detectives and things like that? You know, that's a great motivator because, you know, you will find your audience. But, um, but it was partly because I really love reading true crime and, uh, and also it feels like a really unmined area, mm, you know? Mm. And it feels like, the, like readers are coming to it fresh and um, to to novelise crime. I mean, I, I, you know, it's just, it's really interesting because lots of crime writers draw a distinction between true crime and crime fiction. Mm -hmm. And they say crime fiction's okay, but true crime's not okay because you're ethically, you know, in a gray area there. But I know them and I know that they take their crimes from real cases. Yeah. And, you know, um, yeah, I just think it's a, I think it's a slightly tawdry distinction. Had you been kind of secretly taking your fiction crimes from your cases for a long time? Oh yeah, no, I'm yeah. very open about it. Right, yeah, yeah, no, I have, yeah, yeah. And, and I, you know, I think um, uh, most crime writers read the papers obsessively, listen to crime stories, and I think most of us ask the question, what is intriguing about that? Why am mm. I interested in that? What's caught my imagination about that? And it's not that you, you, you recreate the crime, it's what is the, what's the catch? Where's the, where's the question in that? What's mm. the, What's really, you know, what are you finding really moving about that scenario? A missing child or, you know, uh, uh, you know a mysterious wife, uh, you know, a husband disappearing or, what, you know, you sort of take the bones apart of it and, and reconstruct it on the page. Your next book, right, is about a woman who becomes obsessed with the true crime podcast. Um, what can you tell us about that? Um, well, so, so it's about a woman who's, who's listening to a true crime podcast. Actually, it, was, it came out of discussions about the ethics of writing true crime, because right. I thought that was really interesting. And honestly, I was so into my research and so gleeful about writing this book, I didn't think about it for a minute. And it wasn't until yeah. I went to my editor. Um, he said, you know, are you not worried about accusing someone who wasn't previously accused? And I thought, I should have thought that. <laughs> uh, but I knew nobody had children left, so right. I, you know, and I, they, and everyone was dead. So I, this is William Watt, William the husband Watt. and father of some of the victims who, um, who in your book you suggest that he um, bore more responsibility than the well, official I'll, record I'll shows. Well, I'll tell you right? the story. <laughs> I actually had a play on because there was a line in a true crime book about this, and it said, 
William Wharton, Peter Emanuel went out for a drink. Isn't that odd? And that was it. And I thought, God, that is mad. And it was because William Watt had advertised for information about the murder. So he, so Peter Emanuel came forward and said, I have information about the murder. And they, went, they met for a drink and they ended up spending 12 hours getting drunk together. And I, so I thought that's really fascinating. I put on a play in Glasgow um, uh, about the night they spent together. And that was really all it was about. It was the night they spent together and how William Watt was really confused. But it was lunchtime theater it's called a play, a pie and a pint. It's brilliant. <laughs> so you pay a tenner, you get a pint and a pie, and everyone sits at benches and watches a play. Fantastic. Oh, it's brilliant. Yeah. <laughs> and, and every play is on for a week, and it is the most ramshackle theatre production you can imagine. Mm. Because um, what they do is they, they give you, like, half-hour dress rehearsal. The rest of the time, you're in a damp room in a church, <laughs> sort of saying the lines to each other. <laughs> and then you, in that, the morning of the play, you get a half-hour dress rehearsal. They throw up scenery, and so so basically, you know, they say, you know, you do anything because the audience have season tickets, so they'll come and see anything. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> and the audience are, you know, quite. It's, it's there's a lot of pashminas in there. That's all. I, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> a lot of pashminas. They are the most amazing audience. Yeah. They are so open-minded. Yeah. They are so generous with their time. They've, I've been to see things that were crap. And the audience are like, that. oh, well, well, you know, there's always next week. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> uh, they're really amazing. So, so we put on this really, really heavy play about, about this thing. And at the end of it, the older people came forward and said, I remember that case. I used to shop in William Watts Bakery. I knew Peter Manuel's mother. I, I went to see the case. Because they were all of that age. And they said, you've, you've ruined that story. It's a much better story than the story you're telling. <laughs> William Watt wasn't innocent. Right. So there was a story in the papers and there was a story in court. Mm -hmm. And actually, when you sit down and you read the court transcripts, I don't know if you ever follow a true crime um, case in the courts and you're listening one day to the news reports, you think, oh, I could pretend I'm not interested in this. <laughs> oh, what? <laughs> and you feel as if you've missed a chapter. Yeah. You yeah. know, you've missed a bit of it. It doesn't make mm -hmm. any sense. Well, how, why, why, why was he there? He was there before. And when you read the court transcripts, that's how it reads. There's a bit, there's a paragraph missing in the story. Mm. And uh, it doesn't make any sense at all. Why would he do that? Why would he, you know, why are they all giving evidence against him? Why are the audience laughing? Why, um, you know, uh, anyway, the story that people told me when they came up at the end of the play made a lot more sense, mm. a lot more sense. Why did he meet him for a drink for 12 hours? Why did he take the guard dog fly fishing with him? Yeah. That made no sense. Yeah. Um, because it was a Labrador. I don't know if you know dogs, but you don't take a Labrador fly fishing. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there was, a, there was an element of the case, right, that was really similar to... I feel bad bringing up New Zealand crimes because New Zealand's so small and you never know who's in the audience, but um, the, the Mark Lundy case, which everyone here will know, which was a, a man who was convicted and then retried and found not guilty of killing... Wait, not guilty the second time, right? No, guilty the second time, sorry. I was just, I, I suddenly had this terror that I was going to defame someone, someone was going to tell him, someone was his cousin, anyway, New Zealand. Um, <laughs> so, no, found guilty a second time. What did of he do? murdering his wife and daughter. So, and it, right. I, you have to find out about it, because oh, it yeah. reminds me so much of oh, the William right, Watt okay. case. So, it, was, it all hinged on whether he could have made this drive down and back within a period wow. of time in one night, which is exactly, That's exactly the what, same. what happens in your book, yeah. where part of the reason that William Watt um, supposedly couldn't have done this crime was because it wouldn't have been possible to make the drive 
there and, and back to from where he was fly fishing to yeah. Glasgow and back in the period of time. And the police, as they did in the Lundy case, did the, the run themselves to yeah. see whether they could do it in that period of time. It's exactly the same. Oh my <laughs> God. Yeah. So, um, so there's that element of it as well, mm. that as soon as, as soon as you bring up in the book the fact that this drive supposedly couldn't have been done to kill his wife and daughter in this period of time, I was like, he's guilty. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I see, yeah. I, th I think he subcontracted it. Right. That's what yeah, I think yeah. happened was he, yeah. he paid someone to do it and they were, they just got some nutter mm. and Peter he just Manuel, went hog wild. Possibly. Yeah, yeah, he yeah. just went hog wild. Mm. I did that drive actually. Did um, yeah, I did it with a car full of children. <laughs> <laughs> did you tell them what no. you were doing? <laughs> <coughs> Does anybody fancy a day out? Yeah. <laughs> and, and did that drive. Yeah. yeah. You couldn't do it. You couldn't. You no. couldn't do it now. Yeah, right. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, yeah, you yeah. couldn't do it now. Yeah. And also, after he was told that his wife and kid wife, child and sister-in-law had been murdered. Mm. He said, I'm all right to drive. And then there's a sort of keystone, there's sort of clowns in the circus drive a mile down the road. Mm. And they basically take the car off him because he's just too shocked. You know, he wasn't yeah. a man who could drive well under pressure. Right. Yeah, so yeah. I think he nearly drove into a cow at one point. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, but he's, he's a very comedic man. It's, yeah. so it's, it's, it must have been awful to be a slightly silly man in a very sinister story. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like yeah. Graham Greene saying, you know, that it's a great tragedy if your dad dies when a pig falls on him from a balcony. Because <laughs> no one's ever going to feel sad for you because yeah. it's a comedic situation. Yeah. You know? the, yeah. the lack of, the way that you draw the lack of sympathy for him in yeah. court. Is yeah, fantastic. It's a, well, yeah. a journalist uh, um, who was similarly obsessed with it um, gave me a copy of a letter that William Watt had written for her paper. She right. got it out of the archives and, uh, and she gave it to me. And he is so pompous. I mean, he has no idea how to make people like him. And maybe in the Rotary Club, this would have gone down well, but the letter is written in the second person, which even now I find quite annoying. <laughs> and, uh, but this is in the 50s. And he's writing to the murderer to publish in a tabloid and the letter starts, you beast, you are sitting in your room, sweating with guilt, uh, oh. you know, and telling the, the murderer to come forward, you know, you have the hand of fate on your shoulder and all the metaphors are jumbled because the journalist was going through, she's like, look at the writing, it's terrible, it's terrible, <laughs> you know? Um, and uh, yeah, he was a really peculiar man and he was yeah. very tall. So yeah, everything yeah. he did was, and, and, and very clearly he had a drink problem mm. uh, because he crashed, he got drunk and crashed his car into a wall in the Gorbals the night mm. before he was supposed to give evidence mm. um, in court in front of everybody. Mm. So he's, he's obviously not got any control over his drinking at all. And um, he gets stretchered into the court case and he's a very tall man and most Scottish people are very small, you know, and uh, so it's like trolls carrying this gigantic man in <laughs> on a First World War stretcher. It's like cloth with sticks. It's the whole thing's bizarre. Yeah. And he's lying there and, and in the pictures and he's got his Macintosh over his arm and he's lying there and the crowds are all like that. What the fuck is going on? <laughs> uh, um, we should we should talk about your women. Yeah. Um, did you miss them when you were writing? You know those the the characters, the main characters you write in your fiction. Did you miss them when you? I were writing really them? really missed them. Yeah. So this so the, the the book that I've just finished writing, it was a real relief to get back to, uh, um, having a point of view character. Mm. You know, I to be honest with you, I don't really think men and women are all that different. Mm. I think you can put dialogue in a man's mouth or dialogue in a woman's mouth, and it doesn't really make that much difference. Um, but I think that the thing about the long drop is the women were all silent. Mm. 
mm. but very eloquent at the same time. And you do that so well with with Manuel's mother, yeah, and also with that character of William Watt's sister-in-law, who I don't think really gets barely any lines for yeah. the whole thing. But you have one chapter that's just from her point of view, yeah, and you can see, you can tell how astute she is from spending all these afternoons at the movies, yeah. watching, <laughs> watching, yeah, because that was yeah. one of the things was when when you know when I was reading the transcripts and I was reading mm. the newspaper accounts, they all used American terminology from the movies. Mm. So my editor was saying, no, no one says janitor, would they not say, you know, caretaker? And I said, no, but in Glasgow, everyone says janitor. And that's from American movies. Oh, so they okay. say the janny, they call it, do you use that term here? No, no. they say there's a, there's a janny in every school and in, in, in right. my son's school, he was John the janny. <laughs> and, um, uh, but the, the dial, a lot of the dialogue is from Humphrey Bogart movies or oh, Cagney right. movies, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, in Glasgow, lots of guys used to pretend to be Cagney. Mm. It was a, and you didn't even think, oh, he's pretending to be Cagney. It was mm. just they would do that and they would shoot the cuffs and all that, you know. Mm. And they all had these wee hairdos and they mm. dressed like Cagney and, you know, they were tough like Cagney. Because if you think about movies and representations of small, tough guys from working class backgrounds, that was all there was. And mm. British movies were full of you know, idiot servants. That was yeah. the only time you would ever see a working class guy. But in America, they were the heroes. In mm. American movies, they were the heroes. So the, we, we say guy, that's from American movies. You know, a lot of the terminology was from American movies. And Peter Watt, when he was interviewed, kept saying, I have to turn detective. <laughs> you know, I became a detective. And so yeah. he's seeing himself in this movie. So you, when, you, when you're reading a first person accounts or accounts from that time, you realise how saturated the culture is with that form of storytelling because right. a lot of the, the book is really about the stories we tell about ourselves yeah, and yeah. how Peter Manuel thinks of himself and how William Watt, who they think their audience is mm. and they've nearly always got it wrong. Yeah, um, yeah it was, but it was really fascinating the way people used dialogue in those days. But I, did, I, did, I really missed writing about women. But the thing is, you know, the women don't have to be speaking to be very eloquent. Yeah. And... Mm. Uh, you know, uh, there's a, a convention in Glasgow of the silent wife standing behind the big idiot husband who's barking, but the woman is giving a running commentary mm. in the back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so you don't have to be speaking to be very eloquent. <laughs> so you have these three very well-known series of fiction, um, and the first one you published is the Garnet Hill trilogy, um, and it's such a... It's such a triumphant and brave book anyway, but to think that it was your first book, that you've got this woman who had suffered this terrible childhood sexual abuse, and she is basically <coughs> going around solving crimes and, and kind of trying to meet out justice in some ways, but, but some, of the, some of the harsh realities of life that you depicted in that book, I imagine it would have taken some other people a little while to work up to writing a book like that. Where did that book come from? I just didn't know what I was doing. Really, I didn't think it was going to get published, and I just thought, write what you want to read. Yeah. And, and I, you know, I was so sick of the convention of uh, people who, who have been um, victims of sexual violence. At that time, because this is 20, over 20 years ago, uh, it's like 22 years ago, any woman who had been raped or sexually abused as a child either died or became a girlfriend of the detective, and that saved her. It's like, you know, uh, they were never active. You know, I knew a lot of survivors of childhood sexual abuse who were living 
amazing lives. You know, I mean, like, you know, um, you know, if you if you grow up in care, what what you want to do is be a social worker because those are the that's your aspiration because those are the professionals that you see. Um, and uh, you know, I knew a lot of people who had had a very hard time, and they were living these heroic lives, really heroic lives. You know, you know, raising five kids on no money and still being nice to people. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like taking yeah, yeah. in neighbourhood kids, and you know, they had really a really really hard time, but they were never represented as heroes. Mm -hmm. And you know, uh, at that time, this is long before historic sexual abuse was a big thing. Mm -hmm. So you would pick up on it from things people didn't say. You know, people didn't say. I had a terrible childhood. My childhood was a great tragedy. People would say things like, oh, wasn't that great? You know, or mm -hmm. I'm glad it's over or something like that. Do you know what I mean? You had yeah, to read yeah. between the lines. Yeah. And, uh, and those people were, most people who are sexually abused as children go on and lead normal, productive lives. Mm -hmm. You're not allowed to talk about it that way because, uh, uh, because you can only be defined in reference to the crime of sexual violence that's happened to you. Mm -hmm. That's the way we talk about it. So if you say, you know, that happened and now I'm leading a productive life and making a contribution to society, it almost minimises it. No, it doesn't. It makes you a fucking hero. Mm, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It, it, it doesn't... It, everything that happens to you subsequently doesn't talk about that experience. Mm. And uh, so I knew loads of those people and they all worked at Women's Aid. They were all doing voluntary work. They were all... And they were always the people who would say, I'll put the chairs out. I'll do the tea. Do you know what I mean? Mm, they were yeah, just yeah. amazing, amazing people. And I just thought I would really like someone like that to be a hero and, uh, and use rational deduction, which is what detective novels are about. Yeah. Because if something like that happens to you, essentially, as a character, you can never then have rational deduction. Yes. Because it just breaks your brain, so we don't have to deal with you as a character. No, it doesn't break your brain. <laughs> you know, most people just rumble on and assume nobody really cares. And um, I mean, it's fascinating now because a lot of those people, and it's men and women, eventually went to the police. Yeah. And they did it because a next generation were in danger of being abused. They wouldn't stand up for themselves because it was too fucking scary, but they would do it for other people. And that tells you what those people are about. They are so heroic. And uh, anyway, so that I, was, I was really writing a book for me and five other women that I yeah. knew. And, and so that's why it's written, the dialogue is, you know, very Glaswegian, people use swears that you couldn't sell that book in America. It's sold in America, I couldn't believe it. And, um, and you know, I was living in a flat at the time and, uh, um, and I remember somebody phoning and saying, you know, um, my, my agent phoned and said, you know, they're, they're gonna publish this book. And I didn't sleep for a week. And then I got a phone call from the Cannes Film Festival and it was someone saying, you know, we're, we've, we've put in an option to buy the rights for this, uh, to make the movie. And she said, what's that weird noise on the, the line? And it was going beep, boop. Do you know what that is? She'd phoned a payphone. It was a payphone. It <laughs> 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 was going beep, boop. And she, anyway, yeah, it was, just, it was just absolutely mental. But I mean, I really wrote a book for me and five other people. And I, uh, but you, yeah. Yeah, I mean, th but that's, that's what makes those books, that trilogy, even more astonishing is the fact that you somehow draw this narrative that isn't, that isn't what we'd call these days kind of an empowerment narrative, much as there's some great empowering stuff out there, but, but the fact that she has this agency, I guess it is, that she's so witty and smart and she's solving these crimes, but at the same time, you just have this slow burn underneath that crops up at times of this 
of this terrible thing that she's still trying to deal with. And at times that kind of lays her low and at other times she kind of manages to transcend it. And the, just the realism of that narrative, that back when you wrote those books, wouldn't have really been a narrative in crime novels and still isn't really that I much. think my publishers were very disappointed because I think they wanted Garnet Hill. She's got troubles, fine, but in the second one, can she be a winner? Oh, and, and she doesn't in and the she's second not. one. That's even better. She's yeah, not. She and I, I thought, you know, yeah. this is for someone who's had serious depression and I'm not going to fucking lie to them and pretend that she gets a job as a model. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? But that's what made me trust you, is the fact that in the second book, she has an even harder time. At the yeah. end of the first book, you think, great, she's got it. And then, but then part of you is like, yeah, but if that was real life, I guess. And then the second book, she's real It is also with Leslie. Yeah, that's the worst yeah. thing that can happen Leslie's to you. Leslie's her best friend. Her best yeah, friend. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, yeah, no, I just thought I'm not gonna lie about it. And, and, yeah. and you know, I, I should have been a lawyer. All my family are lawyers and uh, all my friends were lawyers and I should have been a lawyer. And at one point I made a decision I'm not going to chase money. I've read far too much George Orwell. I'm not going to chase money. I'm going to try and do something with integrity. And if I have to waitress for the rest of my life, that's all right. And uh, I haven't had to waitress. So I'm, you know, I'm way, well ahead. Whatever happens now, it's all gravy now. But, um, uh, but I thought, you know, I'm not going to, for those five people that I wrote that book for, I'm not going to lie to them and pretend it's all all right, but it's still survivable. Mm. And I'm not going to, and, my, and, and, and I know that my publishers are very disappointed because Garnet Hill did very, very well. And then the, the sales figures really kind of slide down. Because I think people want a triumphant narrative, mm. but that wasn't what I was trying to do. I was trying to write something real mm. and something that, you know, people, people who had had those experiences would say, yeah, that does feel real. Do you know mm. what I mean? It does feel, you are sleeping with random guys and it's, it's quite nice, but it's not that important to you. And do you know what I mean? You yeah, don't, yeah. She doesn't end up married. Mm. I think what they wanted was for her to get better, get yeah. married, yeah. have some kids. Oh, I hate my German kitchen. Yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but even if the sales figures, I mean, you had me as a reader for life from books two and three of that trilogy. And I'm sure there are other people like that here as well. So. Not That's, all that, to me. That's all that matters um, to me. That's all that matters to me. You said that you didn't have to bartend for life. However, one place you were just telling me out the back that you did bartend, and this answered a question that I had, because then you had the Paddy Meehan series of books, who was about this Scottish, uh, this Scottish newspaper reporter who, as a... 20-year-old, I don't know why, because those books are horrible and the journalists are horrible to each other, but as a 20-year-old journalist, I just, I was, I was so <laughs> thrilled with them and I wanted to be Patty and, and even though, you know, her life is really hard. Yeah. Um, but I could not understand how you so understood the mindset of a journalist and especially a crime and court journalist without, I, I just assumed for years that you had been a journalist. And, yeah. then, and then, you know, recently when I started trying to learn about your actual life, I learned that you hadn't. I could not understand how you had that, that level of, of observation. But out the back, you told me that you were the bartender in a press bar, or in yeah. a bar where journalists used to drink. Yeah. Tell me about that. Well, I, was, I, I worked in, uh, in this bar and all the journalists drank in it. Mm. And also, at that time, I was quite fat. And those guys, it was like being invisible because they basically looked at women and sort of judged whether or not they fancied them. And if they didn't fancy them, they just, you were invisible. Mm. I mean, you could honestly, you know, walk through walls and things like that. They would say all sorts of things in front of you. Mm. One guy actually leaned over over my head and said to another guy, there's bags of fanny in here tonight. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, he's kind of 
amazement. I felt kind of privileged, actually. You know? <laughs> uh, honestly, it was it was a really amazing experience. And also, also another thing was, at that time, the presses were really, really changing, yeah. and so really, all I did was write and get interviewed. Mm -hmm. That was my whole life was mm -hmm. write and get interviewed, and. Uh, it's very difficult to be interviewed because you talk about yourself all the time and it feels really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. And so I would ask them, you know, what are you, like, for example, going out to get my photograph taken with this guy and it was freezing and it was taking two and a half hours. So I got this guy's life story because all you have to do is ask leading questions. And journalists don't really get asked questions mm -hmm. that much. And so they would tell you their whole life story. and. Uh, this guy was taking photographs for ages, was being bullied by the picture desk editor, and he didn't want to do this anymore. And his work was really amazing. And, you know, he was showing me his work, and he had it in his bag, because at that time he didn't have digital. And uh, so, so that was a lot of the... So I was doing the research as I was promoting other books, because yeah, um, yeah. they, they really wanted to talk about it. And um, also, all the, a lot of them were becoming unemployed. And so I would have met them early on, and then I would take them out for a cup of tea and say, I'm doing research, and, uh, and they would just monologue for four hours yeah. about uh, you know, the, the whole history. And Val McDermott was brilliant as well, because that's yeah, right. the process Val came up through as yeah, well, yeah. which if you ever talk to Val or listen to Val and think she sounds quite hard-nosed, mm. that's why, because she was a wee girl, <laughs> you know, with a regional accent coming up through that process. And she survived that, you know? Yeah, yeah. Mm. It's really, um, it's really interesting the the gender politics of the newsroom in the city seen through the eyes of Patty. Yeah. Um, and I read somewhere that you've been told when you started out doing interviews and literary events not to talk about feminism. Oh yeah, that, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that was. That I was just the... thought, what else could you like? The, the, those books are such a such an indictment of the gender of newsroom culture and yeah. how women reporters had no, it for It was Garnet Hill. Right, really. We forget that feminism was so unfashionable 25 years ago. Mm. I mean, it was really like, I remember holding a copy of, do you know Spare Rib, the magazine? Mm. Holding a copy of Spare Rib and someone saying to me, I didn't know you were a lesbian. <laughs> <laughs> I felt quite flattered, actually. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but, you know, it was really, it was a, like a very discredited movement. We were mm. very discredited and, Everything was uh, framed as separatism and, uh, you know, the idea that you would... I mean, it was just a way of getting people to stop standing up for themselves. Do you know what I mean? It just was. And, um, but, you know, they said... And crime fiction was regarded as politically neutral. And I used to... The yes! Least politically neutral, yeah. I know. Yeah. So, so I would give this interview and I would talk about Stanley Fish and I would talk about mm. point of viewlessness. Are you a Stanley Fish fan? Oh, yeah, I massive. Love Stan I love okay. him. Sorry, continue. Right. So Stanley Fish wrote a book called There's No Such Thing as Free Speech and It's a Good Thing Too. And he talks about there's no such thing as point of viewlessness. And if mm. you have male protagonists going around solving everything, that's a point of view. You're making a point of view. But things appear to be neutral the closer they are to the status quo. And uh, so, you know, if you see lots of dead sex workers and that doesn't feel like it's a, inherently political, it's because it's close to the status quo, so you're not questioning. So I would give this interview and people would say, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and then they would write an article and it would say, sprightly mother, uh, you know, uh, how does she do everything? <laughs> how do you fit in your house cleaning? And um, uh, 
you know, she doesn't seem like a feminist. She's quite nice, actually. She made, <laughs> made me a cup of tea and, uh, and stuff like that. And then I went to Scandinavia. Mm. And so, you know, I was kind of rolling through my act, you know, da, 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 da. here's one you might remember from a few years ago. <laughs> and, uh, and they were kind of going, yeah, 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 of course, of course. Because there, because of the, the history of crime fiction there, they know that it's inherently political. Mm. And, and there's no question of it. And that is why the books are so good, because... Mm. They're so aware of the history of it and what you're saying, what you're not saying, and you know what conventions you're following, and yeah, it's just really interesting. But now, I mean, now I think it's fairly as a given that crime fiction is very political. But at that time, feminism was very unpopular. And just before, when Garnet Hill came out, my uh, I, my editor phoned me, and she and I'd given up my job the day before. I dropped out of my PhD and we had a party, <laughs> and she phoned me and she said, "Don't give up your job." And I was like, "Oh,", oh. and um, <laughs> don't give up your job and don't mention feminism when you're doing publicity. Uh, it was good advice. I didn't follow it, but it was good. It yeah. was good advice. <laughs> but that, that's that's yeah. how that's how little they understood about what Garnet Hill was. They yeah. didn't really yeah. see. It was quite funny actually because uh, the secretary at my agent phoned me up and said, "Oh, darling, these people were so posh. I mean, I got an agent because I was working as a receptionist in a friend's office, and I phoned Directory Inquiries, which is what you did back then, yeah. and said, um, could you give me the number of some literary agents in London? And they said, well, what area of London? And I couldn't think of any areas yeah. of London. And I said, mm, Chelsea? And there's no agents in Chelsea. So they gave me some numbers, and I sent off Garnet Hill to three of them, and mm. one of them took me on as a... I mean, that's how random it was. Yeah, I mean, I just yeah. didn't know any... And she phoned up, and she said, who should we take this to? Should we, do you know anybody? And I said, well... My boyfriend's friend knows someone who made tea at Bloomsbury, not realising that it was Rachel Calder, whose mum owns Bloomsbury. <laughs> <laughs> My agent was Rachel Calder, and she oh, said, oh, you know, I think we'll just do it. But it went to a publisher called Transworld, mm -hmm. who were just massive, uh, you know, uh, sort of mass market, Blockbuster. In fact, Lee Reacher, Lee, um, oh, Lee Childs. Child. Yeah, yeah, we, we were both Reacher published stuff. at the same time. Yeah. And I think they've been a bit more pleased with the trajectory of his career. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but they really thought it was going to be like a Jack Reacher series. Right. And it was going to be padam, padam, and she's jumping out of a plane and, yeah, you know, wow. stuff like that. So, did you, were you a big fan of the Patricia Cornwell K. Scarpita books? At the beginning. Yeah, me too. Yeah, yeah. at the beginning. She's this, yeah. she's this really amazingly hard forensic pathologist, mm. and then towards the end, she gets to the jumping out of helicopters kind she's, um, of she, stuff. She becomes very successful, and every, every time she's, <laughs> she's good, all the, she's right all the time, everyone falls silent and listens to what she has to say, and uh, the only thing I like about those books is she just loses all sympathy, and you just think, what an arsehole. By the, yeah. you know, she, 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 but at the beginning, she's really nuanced, and she's, you know, she's kind of struggling with lots of things. The only thing I like about those books is the murderer always tries to kill her, and I find myself on the murderer side yeah. <laughs> in those books. <laughs> I feel, I, before I stopped reading them, I started feeling sorry for Patricia Cornwell because I thought, as Case Gabita becomes more kind of rich and famous, I felt like it was Patricia Cornwell becoming more rich and famous. We were and talking not about this how, yesterday. How normal people. I know, God did, love her. Did, like, how, is it because you live in Glasgow? How do you? How are you still such a normal person who still writes about well, normal people? Well, <laughs> uh, no, no, but I, I come from a very big family, right. and also I was very aware that I know quite a lot of famous people, and the more grand they become, the more isolated and depressed they become, and it's a real trap. 
and uh, you know, however grand you become, it's never grand enough, and you're always slightly disappointed. And a friend of mine was in a private plane, and he was complaining that it hadn't been hoovered. And <laughs> I just thought, that is such a trap. He's moved home now. He's all right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, that was actually, that was Craig Ferguson, actually. Who's <laughs> <laughs> moved home, home and we go to the gym together, and yeah. we, get, we have the same hairdresser. But it's a real trap, and you see, as, you, as a bunch of you come up, Mm. You see people going into different traps. Mm. And I thought, that's a real trap because you're never going to be comfortable then. Mm. And, uh, and, you know, but it's difficult because people are very nice to you and mm. you have to, without being obsequious, you have to undercut that. Mm. And you have to, you know, even if you're tired, you still have to ask people about themselves because they may have the most amazing story to tell mm. you. Mm. Like the pensioners coming up and saying, yeah. no, that's shit, that's a much better, a much better yeah, story yeah. at the back of that. Also, another thing that you have to bear in mind is this will end. You, do you know what I mean? I mean, there will be a time when I come trolleying out and there's fucking no one there. <laughs> because there will, it's gonna end. So you are at a certain part of the arc and if you yeah. meet a lot of other writers, a lot of writers are very disappointed that the hill wasn't higher, yeah. or they're on the other side, yeah. or they have pet grumbles, mm. usually about money, mm. or about reviews, or things like that. And really, bitterness is a huge trap. Mm. You know, that's just, that's the epic battle of middle age, isn't it? Are mm. you gonna be bitter? Mm. Or are you gonna look at what you've got or what you've not got? Mm. That's, that's true for everybody, do you mm. know what I mean? And, uh, and it's a choice, really, because we're all, fat western fucks, aren't we? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? This is the perfect time to see yeah, so I'm sorry for calling you that. No, this is great. This is, this is such good Sunday morning life advice. I feel like we can all feel like we've learned something from this. Um, we, might, we might throw it open for a couple of questions. So just start kind of percolating on that. I believe there, are, there is a roving mic or two. Um, just while you're thinking about that and ready to get your hand up, um, I might just ask... Um, about, you mentioned the, the Jack Reacher books, and I wondered, in, in the Alex Morrow books, she's a detective who um, tries sometimes to get her colleagues to have some, a little bit of empathy, for example, for women who have been murdered, in particular sex workers who have mm. been murdered. And it's not that, I hate the idea of like gratuitous violence, because put as much violence in it as you want, yeah. right? Like, you well, do one you, person's mild violence is another person's gratuitous. Exactly, yeah. And no writer ever thinks their books are violent. Mm. We always think it's essential to the plot. So, yeah, yeah. Yeah, so but it's it, not that your books are, are less violent than other people's, but you somehow do something different when you're talking about the violence perpetrated on women that it does not feel as... Like, I can't watch that show Criminal Minds anymore because the, the lens that they've turned on women has changed over the course oh, of the really? series. And it's now, it feels more exploitative now than it used to be. Right. And somehow you don't do that. And I just wondered how that was. Well, I think you always have to think, well, if this was my sister, do you know what I mean? Mm, I mean, I just, yeah. you know, and, I, and to be honest with you, I, you know, some people have real prejudices against sex workers and I just don't really. Mm. I have friends who are sex workers. Mm. And, and one of my friends said, you know, if you think you don't know a sex worker, it's because they don't feel safe to yeah. tell you. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. Because, you know, because it's not all, you know, tramping the streets in uncomfortable shoes. Mm. There are a lot of variations on that. Mm. And um, I used to live, I live in quite a grand house mm. and next door used to be a brothel. So mm. it was like quite a sort of down heel area. And there are lots and lots of steps up to the brothel. And, um, and I used to see, nobody knew I lived there, and I used mm. to see like holy willies from my mum's church running up the stairs <laughs> there. <laughs> you know, and, uh, and my friend worked there. And um, uh, you know, she wouldn't tell you anything indiscreet because she takes her job very seriously. Yeah. 
and she's just a wee lady really but yeah. she would she would say things like you know a lot of it is spending time talking to people yeah. a lot of it is about connection it's really mm. not about erections and mm. uh, do you know what i mean yeah, it is, yeah, you know and, and just the tender way she talks about it and and you know there are so many you know sex is an exchange mm. and just because money's in it doesn't make it one thing. Mm. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I mean, yeah, I'm sure yeah. some of the men that she's she's seen over the years would have killed themselves if it wasn't for her. Yeah. Do you know yeah. what I mean? I yeah, mean, how I could you not yeah. um, honour that? You know. Yeah. You know. Um, have we got any questions? Be brave. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> Hi. We'll get your microphone. <laughs> Thanks. You've got terrific titles for your books, Garnet Hill, The End of the Wasp Season, Blood Salt Water. Do you come up with them yourself? Is it your publisher's edict sometimes? And if, if they are yours, how do you come up with them? Well, sometimes they just present themselves. Um, so, for example, what's his name? Michael, what's the name of that philosopher from Harvard who speaks in a very slow manner? He was having a debate about something. Holden. Huh? Is it the, sl the oh, slow guy? Yeah. It's, um, he's, anyway. he's, he's fascinating mm. and he's, it's jurisprudence it's not really it's not that interesting to most people but he was having this really dull as ditch water debate and I was mopping the floor and I heard him quote gods or beasts those who live outside the city walls are either gods or beasts and I ran off and wrote that down but it's just having your ears open really um, but sometimes my titles have been changed for example Still Midnight um, a, a friend of ours Regan Arthur um, that was supposed to be called, it's a book about, uh, you know, a family are at home and two gunmen burst in and take the father hostage and no one thinks they've got any money. So why, why, why are they taking him hostage? And it was supposed to be called In the Still Suburban Midnight because all the books at that particular time were, you know, bam, boom, death, you know, you know it's all one word things. And I thought <laughs> I want something really lyrical and because it, it was an unexpected story. So, um, uh, anyway, Reagan kept, everything was called Still Midnight. I thought they just conflated it for the purposes of email. But then I got the book. Because <laughs> I'd agreed to I had agreed to it. But, but anyway, so Still Midnight was a mistake. And I was thinking, people will think I'm so fancy in the still suburban midnight. Get yeah. the rhythm of that. <laughs> Do you find it hard to come up with titles? Well, I, I used to be a publisher... No, right. I quite enjoyed it, actually. Did but you? yours are so distinctive. I was right. just so Dan's wondering. book is called The Woman at the Window. Yes. Yeah. Did you come up with that? I did, because it's about a woman and a window. Oh, that's so. right. Okay. <laughs> you see how I got yeah. there. Yeah. <laughs> I've always wondered. Yeah. <laughs> um, have we got any others? Great. One down there. Awesome. <laughs> I might That's just not a career you pick in Scotland. Well, I, I might just repeat that back for the recording. Okay, so it was, where did you go to school? Yeah. And basically, did someone tell you, why did you become a writer? Right. Yeah. I didn't tell anyone I was going to be a writer. I actually dropped out halfway through the law diploma, and I said to my best pal, Ellie, I'm dropping out because I want to be a writer. And Ellie said the one thing that, the one proper thing, she said, oh, for fuck's sake. <laughs> <laughs> Because, uh, yeah, anyway, there's a long history to that. But that was the most honest response because it is a stupid thing to want to do. And it's quite a 
grand, self-aggrandizing thing to want to do. And, uh, and we didn't really know anybody that did that, you know. Mm -hmm. And she's still my best pal. In fact, her wee brother lives here, and I'm going out for lunch with him after. And he's going to be disrespectful to me as well. <laughs> uh, but as for going to school, it, it would take four hours, because I went up at 16 different schools, because my parents were insane. So they moved, we moved school every six months or something like that. I mean, it was, it was the 70s and, and, you know, people just did stupid things. Now we would be taken off them. But at that time, uh, so we lived in, um, I'll just give you, a, a, so East Kilbride, St. Louise's, and then we went to um, Clutter School in Amsterdam, and then in Den Haag, and then we went to uh, Blessed John Ogilvy in Berlanark, which, uh, do you know that school? Yeah, it's like Fort Apache the Knox. It's all razor wire. You can hardly see the windows for razor wire. And then, uh, and then we went to the local school in La Celle saint Cloud in Paris. And then we, then we went to the English School of Paris. You can see my dad's income rising here. And then we went to several schools in London. And then um, Invergordon. And then back to Paris again. And then uh, my parents went to live in Norway and we were sent to boarding school. This is the high point of my dad's income. We went to boarding school in Perth, Kograston. Do you know Kograston? Yeah. No way. I'll talk to you after. <laughs> were you in Kograston? No, but they were fat folk every year. All right, all right, right. Anyway, then my dad's income starts to drop. And, um, uh, and then I went to a school in London. What a lot of people don't know about private schools in the 70s was they build you at the end of the year. <laughs> <laughs> so we came from a really working class background, but, and we didn't, we didn't end up with money, but what we ended up with was a tremendous sense of entitlement. <sighs> That's all you need, is to be near people yeah. with a sense of entitlement. I could be a writer. What a fucking thing to think you could yeah, do. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Um, uh, so I always go out to schools in deprived areas because I think it doesn't matter if I'm good or bad. Just for them, to, it gives kids a sense of entitlement. This is for you. If you can tell a story, you can write a story, you know. Um, anyway, then I ended up at different, lots of different schools. And then I, and I left school at 16 and I went to night classes and worked. That was a thing you would do at the time. And uh, I was reading a lot of 19th century novels and uh, I was doing night classes and things like that. <laughs> and, uh, and I got into university that way. So... Um, we actually don't have time for any more. I'm very sorry. Come and ask um, at the end. Yeah. You probably don't even really have a question. You're just a nice man. Yeah. <laughs> I'll take the poor look off those two. <laughs> you two could still be friends in 20 years and sending pictures of your children. I don't know. Um, so um, I just wanted to thank all of you so much yeah, for coming out much. on a Sunday morning. Absolutely wonderful. Um, please go and buy lots of books from the UBS stall outside. You've got lots to choose from. Denise will be at the signing table. And finally, I just wanted to thank Denise so much for at the end of a festival where I think she has done more sessions than any, she's done all of hers and all of Irvine Welsh's sessions. <laughs> so oh, it's been to, a real honour to be here. It's been so a real honour. and been energetic lovely. on a Sunday morning at the end of all this is, has just been wonderful. So thank, thank you, you so much. much. Thanks very much. Thank you.